if you would turn in your Bibles, please, to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. This morning, we used Hebrews chapter 4 as a launching point to talk about Jesus being our faithful high priest. And we examined the Old Testament backgrounds that help us to better understand why Jesus' priesthood is a big deal, why it happened, and why we should care about it. Tonight, we'll build upon that by examining a subsequent doctrine that is often called the priesthood of all believers. Because Jesus is our great high priest, we in turn are called priests. sense. Never fear. As we're going to see, the doctrine of the priesthood of all believers is not tied to the idea of salvation. Let me be clear up front. Jesus' sacrifice on the cross was singular and sufficient to atone for all the sins of all of God's people. In the words of Hebrews chapter 9, beginning at verse 25, He, that is Jesus, did not enter the heavenly sanctuary to offer himself many times, as the high priest enters the sanctuary yearly with the blood of another. Otherwise, he would have had to suffer many times since the foundation of the world. But now he has appeared one time at the end of the ages for the removal of sin by the sacrifice of himself. Our status as priests has nothing to do with granting salvation to people. We are not another mediator instead of Christ. We do not have permission to bestow salvation on anyone, and we don't get to choose who is saved and who is not. So then, in tonight's passage that we're about to read, what does it mean to say that we are all priests? Let's all stand together if you are medically able, and we will find out through the public recitation of the inerrant word of God, 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning at verse 9. The apostle Peter writes, But you, believers in Jesus, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession, so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are. You had not received mercy, but now you have been mercied. Thus far as the reading of the word of God, you may be seated. Thank you, Lord, for the gift of your word and that we may read it together. It's always good practice when you're examining a doctrine in the New Testament to ask where that idea has its foundations, its, its earliest mention in the earliest pages of the Old Testament. In the case of the priesthood, you might reasonably suspect that the earliest mention of it might be in the book of Leviticus. And that's an understandable guess. But it would be wrong. 
the first texts relevant to priesthood can actually be found in the pre-fall world of Genesis 1 and 2. And I can understand why you might initially be skeptical of that, but follow with me for a few moments. When Solomon was constructing the temple in Jerusalem where the priests lived and exercised all of their daily labors, he intentionally had garden imagery carved into the very walls of the structure. We read, we read for example, in 1 Kings chapter 6, first with verse 18. The cedar paneling inside the temple was carved with ornamental gourds and flower blossoms. Then a little bit farther down in verse 29, he carved all the surrounding temple walls with carved engravings, cherubim, palm trees, and flower blossoms in the inner and outer sanctuaries. And then finally in verse 35, he carved cherubim, palm trees, and flower blossoms on the doors and overlaid them with gold applied evenly over the carving. All of this floral imagery in the temple is meant to draw the Israelites' minds back to Eden. Actually, just about everything in the way that the temple is constructed is meant to the ancient Israelite mind to have literary connections back to Eden. It's supposed to scream that in their minds. Uh, for example, the fact that everything is covered in gold, the fact that there are cherubim everywhere, and the fact that the temple is located on the top of a mountain all of these things in the ancient world have connections back to this ideal garden before everything went wrong. We don't have time to go into all of those details here, although it is a fascinating thing to study. The point for us here tonight is that the Jerusalem temple, as the place where God dwelt with his covenant people, it was quite literally designed from the ground up to be a small, temporary imperfect recreation of the Garden of Eden. Now, we, as Christians living after the end of the New Testament, we have the advantage of knowing how the story ultimately ends. We've all read the end of the story in the book of Revelation, so we all know that God will only fully and truly restore the Edenic conditions in the age to come, in the new heavens and the new earth. But much like what I said this morning regarding animal sacrifices, the Jerusalem temple as God's sacred space was a stopgap measure so that Old Testament believers would still have a means of communing with God until the Messiah could arrive and begin to set things right once more. It was a temporary solution to a long-term problem. So we have imagery in the temple that connects us back to Eden. But we also have terminology that goes in the opposite direction. Believe it or not, there is um, terminology in Genesis 1 and 2 in the pre-fall Garden of Eden that foreshadows language that is going to be used of the priests later on. We have, for example, Genesis chapter 2, verse 15 where we're told that Yahweh God took the man and placed him in the Garden of Eden to work it and watch over it. This notion of laboring to maintain Eden while also protecting it from outside danger is the same language that is used later on to describe the duties of the priests in the temple. 
For example, Yahweh says to Moses' brother Aaron in Numbers chapter 18, beginning at verse 5, You, Aaron, and the Levitical priests, you are to guard the sanctuary and the altar so that wrath may not fall on the Israelites again. Look, I have selected your fellow Levites from the Israelites as a gift for you, assigned by the Lord to work at the tent of meeting. But you and your sons will carry out your priestly responsibilities for everything concerning the altar and for what is inside the curtain, and you will do that work. You will labor that work. I am giving you the work of the priesthood as a gift, but an unauthorized person who comes near will be put to death. So Adam had similar functions um, in pre-fall Eden that the priests later on would have in the temple. There are also, however, some important differences between the two that we'll get to in a few minutes. But for the moment, we can say that Adam was a kind of priest in Eden. But that still sounds quite odd to our ears, doesn't it? What, what exactly would have been Adam's responsibilities? What would have been his job description up until everything went wrong in Genesis chapter 3? The answer has to do with the image of God. The key text to help us understand this is Genesis chapter 1, beginning at verse 27, dark 26, excuse me. Then God said, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. They will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, the livestock, the whole earth, and the creatures that crawl on the ground. So God created man in his own image. He created them in the image of God, male and female, he created them. God blessed them and he said, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule the fish of the sea, birds of the sky, and every creature that crawls on the ground. This language of subduing, of ruling the earth as imagers of God helps to clarify what the original Edenic vision for the priesthood was, as well as (coughs) how it unfortunately had to be modified later on. What exactly does it mean to be an imager of God? That's a massive question that theologians have spilled countless gallons of ink trying to answer across the centuries. And it is a multifaceted, complicated idea. But I'm going to focus on the elements of it that are most directly related to this concept of priesthood. In the ancient, <coughs> excuse me, in the ancient world, when the term image was applied to a non-living object, it looked something like this. This is a statue of Baal, the Canaanite god of thunderstorms. The statue is obviously not Baal himself, but it's a representation of him, a representation of a supernatural being in the natural physical realm. If a person wanted to bring an offering to Baal in the hopes of receiving lots of rainfall to help uh, with an abundant crop in the next year, They could go to one of Baal's worship spots, one of his sacred spaces, and present the offering to this image with the understanding that he was ultimately presenting the gift to the God that that image represents. And if they wanted to, on occasion, 
the gods could, for lack of a better way to describe it, dive into, enter into, take possession of uh, these idols as a means of interacting with the people and interacting with the physical world around them. So with that information as a background, what does it mean then for the term image to be applied to a living object, namely a human being? The passage, passage excuse me, that we just read in Genesis 1 tells us, verse 28, God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule the fish of the sea, birds of the sky, and every crawling creature. The non-living images in the ancient Near East were not the gods themselves, but they were visual representations of supernatural beings in the natural realm. They were places where pagans could focus their attention and their worship, and possibly even interact with the gods themselves. In a similar but not identical manner, humanity being made as imagers of God meant that originally we were meant to represent God in the natural world in the sense that we were meant to rule and maintain it on God's behalf. Notice again the language of Genesis 2 verse 15. Yahweh God took the man and placed him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to watch over it. Now you might be asking the question, why would God do it that way? Is he not capable of tending his own creation? He can bring it all into existence, but he, he can't do anything with it after that. Does he really need to hire some interns to delegate his daily task? And the answer is no. God doesn't need us for anything. He's certainly perfectly well capable of taking care of everything by himself. But this is how he wanted it to work. For those of you in the room who are or have been parents of young children, it's kind of like this. Imagine you're getting ready to bake cookies at home, and one of your young children, maybe four or five years old, comes in and says, Mommy, Daddy, can I help you to bake the cookies? And you your response is one of joy because you don't need that child's help. Very obviously, you can do it on your own. And in fact, usually the presence of children in the kitchen results in nothing but chaos. But the fact is that your child wants to be involved with you. They want to do something with you, be involved in the process. And so because it is a heartwarming memory for you as a parent, you want them to be involved even though you don't need their help. In a similar way, God doesn't need humanity to tend creation for him, but he delights to have his imagers involved in his work in the world. Unfortunately, something called the fall happened and that changed everything. The purpose and duties of a priest fundamentally changed between Adam and Moses. Recall this image from this morning, those of you who uh, were able to either be here for the AM service or, or you watched it online. Um, 
a small portion of the Israelites, namely the Levitical priests, were chosen to act as mediators between God and man. They were supposed to represent the people of Israel to God and represent God back to the people. This was to prevent what I jokingly referred to as holiness poisoning. To paraphrase language from Numbers 18 again, Aaron and the priests are told, you are to guard the sanctuary and the altar so that wrath may not fall on the Israelites again. Look, I have selected your fellow Israelites from, your fellow Levites, excuse me, from among the Israelites as a gift for you, assigned by the Lord to work at the tent of meeting. The basic job description of a Levitical priest was to maintain sacred space, to keep the temple away from all associations with death, with sin, and all of the consequences thereof, and thereby to maintain their small, imperfect slice of Eden there at the center of um, Jerusalem. But there's something interesting that we note as we go along in the Old Testament narrative. The priesthood does not stop at the Levites. God makes a curious theological statement to Israel at the foot of Mount Sinai, where he says in Exodus 19, beginning at verse 5, Now if you, all the nation of Israel, if you will carefully listen to me and keep my, com my covenant, you will be my own possession out of all the peoples, although the whole earth is mine, and you will be my kingdom of priests and my holy nation. So this is interesting. The Levites are meant to be an intermediary between God and the rest of his covenant people, Israel. But then at the same time, all of covenant Israel was likewise meant to be priests to the rest of the world, to the rest of the non-believing nations in the world. What are we to make of this? <laughs> we know from looking at the rest of Old Testament history that Israel failed miserably in their mission just about every opportunity they had. But in theory, what should it have looked like for Israel to be a kingdom of priests to the nations. What would that have looked like if they had actually done their job? I think the simplest way to illustrate it is by borrowing one of Jesus' metaphors from the Sermon on the Mount. He says to the believers in his audience in Matthew chapter 5, beginning at verse 14, You are the light of the world. A city situated on a hill cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket but rather on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. In our everyday lives, Jesus has called us to represent him. There's that language of the images again. We are meant to represent him to an unbelieving world. And Jesus himself likens that to shining light into darkness. This is ultimately what the Apostle Peter means in our main passage in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, when he says, You, believers, you are a chosen race, 
a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession, so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Something interesting to note about that quote. Notice the, the underlined portion, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Peter's not just making that up out of nowhere. He's not making up new terminology. He's quoting that from Exodus chapter 19, where God says to Israel at the foot of Mount Sinai, you will be my nation of priests to all the world. And isn't it interesting to note, when God originally spoke those words in Exodus 19, he spoke them to the nation of Israel. But now, in 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter is applying that quote to all believers in Christ. We are all called to be his representatives. Jesus is our great high priest who succeeded where all others failed. And he has called us to take up the task that Old Testament Israel failed to do. Namely, being his representatives, his imagers in all of the earth, proclaiming the goodness of God and what he has done in history. There's a phrase that's become popular in evangelical circles over the past 10 to 15 years or so. You might have heard something like it. It's usually phrased as a command, something like, be Jesus to someone. I would quibble with that wording a little bit, but the spirit behind it is essentially true to this concept of the priesthood of all believers. Imagine it this way. You have a coworker who tells you that they have a beloved family member who is dying. They have uh, some manner of terrible disease, they're hospitalized, and they are on death's door. And you respond by trying to be as much of a blessing to that family as you can be. You pray with this coworker, you go to visit the sick family member in the, the hospital, you provide a few meals for the family so that they have one less thing to worry about. Maybe if the Lord has been especially generous to you in the realm of finances, maybe you help the family to pay for some of their medical bills. In all of these actions, you are being Jesus to someone, or I think a better way to say it would be, you are representing Jesus to someone. Now there's no telling what the ultimate outcome of all of those efforts is going to be. It may be that the Holy Spirit will use your compassion and your connection to those people in their hour of need during one of their crisis periods to draw at least some of those family members to Christ. But that also may not happen. Your coworker may, for a time, express gratitude for your kindness, but then they may go right back to the way things were before. If that is the case, then so be it. Our job is not to know who will be saved and who will not. God has not called us to be peddlers of the gospel, trying to say or do anything to get people to sign on the dotted line. Even if no one from this hypothetical family ultimately repents and believes the gospel, you have still done well. And why is that? Because you have still been a priest. 
you have still brought the good news of Jesus Christ to a non-believer and shined light into darkness. When scripture calls all of us priests, it's not about placing the power of salvation into our hands. Jesus is the one and only high priest who is able to bridge the gap between God and humanity, and his sacrifice is the only means by which we may find peace with God. The Holy Spirit is the only one who can awaken a dead soul and impute it with Christ's righteousness. We have no say in who will be redeemed and who will not. We are simply commanded out of gratitude for what our high priest has done for us to be his messengers, his mediating priests in the sense that we are lights in the darkness. We bring the gospel message from our great high priest to a lost and hurting world. When Christ, our high priest, commissions us to be his kingdom of priests, he doesn't do it that way because he needs us. He does it because he is a loving father who loves to have us baking cookies with him. That is, because he loves his children and rejoices to include us in the grand work that he is doing in this world. Let me pray for us. Thank you, our kind and heavenly Father, our great high priest, Jesus, that you have included us in your work. Were it not enough that you had done what you did on the cross at Calvary, you paid the ultimate price that your people might be set free, you did the perfect work of atonement that no other priest could do, that alone by itself would have been enough. That would have been a gift beyond description. And yet it doesn't end there. You also called us your priests. You gave us a mission. You didn't just give us a get out of hell free card and just send us on our way. You have given us a mission and a life, or excuse me, a mission and a purpose in life. And although that looks different for every person in this room, depending on what we do for a living, who we come into contact with, etc., etc., nevertheless, you have given every single one of us a mission field. And you are with us every step of the way, encouraging us, strengthening us to do what needs to be done. Thank you for that. Thank you that our lives have a purpose and a meaning as your imagers, your representatives, your priests. Through the name of Jesus, our King and our great High Priest, we pray.